This episode with Randall Crowder was not what I expected, and yet it was totally awesome. You know, I don't expect VC guys to be as emotionally intelligent and forward-thinking as Randall Crowder showed up to be, to be honest. But, but more than anything, I really expected there to be some kind of like strategic advantage of like underpricing community in the VC world. But Randall made it pretty clear that the VC world is uh, playing on a different timeline than the community strategy. That being said, he uncovered a whole bunch of opportunities and uh, differentiated thought processes around community when it comes to the VC world. For example, the idea that VCs get much better deals by being involved in communities, the idea that having a community for a company is an antidote to needing VC. And then we got into a bunch of like leadership and very forward-thinking business model stuff. I think you're really, really going to enjoy this with Randall Crowder. As always, this is a internet talk show. This is the thing that I evangelize and Be The Stage evangelizes as the easiest way to most productive way to engage a community, whether you are starting one or you have a community and it's just kind of crickets in there. If you want to get it rolling, go to this internet talk show methodology. If you want advice on that, join us on Mondays when we do this show live and then we go straight into our strategy sessions right after. But for right now, I'm going to leave you with this amazing episode with Randall Crowder. Enjoy. If you know how it is, then you know how it might be. But think what it would look like if you grow your own community. It ain't easy. That's why you're listening to hear experiences from others just like you and me. Welcome to the B2B Community Builder Podcast, a show that was started because if you can unlock the power of having a community around your business, then you will create a source of referrals, validation, marketing content, and product feedback that will be unbeatable. But who has time to think about building a community when you need to be making sure that your team has what it needs to succeed in serving clients and bringing in revenue? That is why we'll be talking to business leaders like you and I that have cracked the code on why the community play is so valuable, how to implement tactics that got them there while still serving short-term goals, and what they can teach you that they have mastered. This show is for you if you are a CEO, CMO, or simply a rainmaker that has realized that without a community, you are just a commodity, but haven't figured out how to add it to your infinite list of priorities. This show is for you if you are a community professional or trying to be a community professional that is trying to convince leadership about the need to invest in a community strategy. This show is not for you if you think transactions are more valuable than relationships. I am your host and chief executive connector, Pablo Gonzalez, co-founder of BeTheStage.Live, a marketing company that specializes in relationship-driven growth. I invented the relationship flywheel and hopefully... I'm your new best friend. So smash that subscribe button, leave a rating when you do, and get ready to plug into the power of community creation for business development. Let's go. We're officially live for the B2B Community Builder Show, season five, episode. I think we're at like 185 or something insane like that. 
today I'm, I'm I'm really pumped for this conversation, man. You were just talking about it, right? Like the the vouching for people, the social social capital to me is something that I have always really understood. While the venture capital world, not so much. So I'm super pumped to get into this. Randall and I connected through a mutual friend. Immediately hit it off. He's an active investor. He's a guy that just does so many things that it makes me uncomfortable that I'm not doing enough. And uh, I always try to like get into those brains. He's got shoulders the size of cantaloupes. Like I'm I'm trying to figure that one out. And venture capitalist, COO of a public tra- publicly traded company, Funware on the NASDAQ, and super cool dude from what I can tell. Randall, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thank you for having me. And, and honestly, you know, I'm humbled to be here. You know, I was talking, I mean, we talked about this in the pre-show, but, you know, putting yourself out there is is hard. Like, it's not natural for a lot of people. And even when you're good at it, it's not natural. So, like, when you host these kind of things, and you do these kind of communities, and you bring kind of people from all walks of life together you know, people don't realize how hard that is. I always say like, you know, your role is how I imagine people think like acting is They're like, oh yeah, you're just really talented or you're a really good singer. You just go up and like, just do your thing, right? Like, no, like the amount of planning and preparation and organization that goes into these things to then have these kind of conversations is, you know, not inconsequential. And so I really appreciate you putting in the work and then letting us just show up and, you know, we can kind of stand in your light every once in a while. Dude, I appreciate the acknowledgement. And now I want to acknowledge the person that really is responsible for putting in this work. Rowan is in the chat. She's our community builder, welcoming everybody. I want to welcome the community that really makes this thing possible. Venya Logan, past star of the show, checking in. We are uh, sharing the stage at CMX Summit here coming up. Venya is one of the, the headiest people I've ever heard speaking about community. Don Bates, who we just aforementioned, our, our in-house Brit, PhD candidate at Oxford, Crusader for Human Rights. Love having Don around. Who else is in? We got Penny Rose. Penny is a uh, a forensics accountant for a three-letter uh, organization that you may have heard of nationally, and she's specializing in accounting for content creators, which I think is an amazing niche, and I love it, man, and I can't wow. wait to help her uh, really blow that up. And we also got- That's awesome. Another past star of the show. I love, I love this. Like, I love the community that happens from hosting people on your stage. You get to attract wonderful people. And Lydia Sugarman, Lydia, I, I don't know much about you. I'm looking forward to get to know you. As you all know, we start here with the with the interview. It is Randall for the next hour and, and picking his brain. And then we go straight into the relationship-driven growth strategy sessions. That's a ask me anything kind of thing where I got some stuff I want to talk to you about, about things that I'm seeing but it's totally community driven. Randall, let's start with you, man. I want to I want to get I want to get right into that uh that genius brain of yours, man. The premise of the show, right? It is what VC money thinks about community and I kind of want to lob it up to you to start of what do you think is the what do you think is the overall belief around community when it comes to the to 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 the VC world these days? You know, I think it's an after the fact construct and and what I mean by that is like when you're when you're thinking of venture capital and for those of you who are new to it, you know, there's different stages of funding, right? You know, so you have kind of early on when you're first getting started, you got, you know, credit cards and, you know, holding out a tin cup and saying, please give me money to help start my thing. And you kind of bootstrap your way into something. If you don't know anybody, maybe you use mom and dad and, and you know, maybe you have a couple of rich friends. Then you kind of have, you know, angel investing, which begins to kind of professionalize some of that, but it's still largely community driven. It's relationship based, different types of communities. And then you really kind of graduate into venture capital, either A, if you have the chops, like the entrepreneurial background to just kind of jump into that, you're a you know, successful Silicon, Silicon Valley operator, and you can kind of call up some you know successful venture funds and like get in the door, 
or you have a company or product that's kind of heading in the right direction that seems interesting to you know, more institutionalized investing groups. And that's kind of your, your venture capital. So what happens in venture capital is a couple people, you know, they're entrepreneurs in their own right. They go out and find the rich people. They pitch them on their thesis for investing. You have never lived until you've raised a fund as a VC. Like I always tell entrepreneurs that cry about like raising money. I'm like, at least you have a product. Like, you know, I was walking into a meeting with really rich people or really rich funds and being like, here's the deal. I want you to give me your money. I don't know what I'm going to do with it yet, but I'm going to do something and it's going to be awesome. And I don't know how much money I'm going to give you back, but I'm going to probably give you back something or lose it all. I don't really know, but give me your money. I'm going to hold on to it for five to 10 years. And at some point I'm going to call you up and either tell you I lost it or here's a check. What do you think? Like, it's the worst possible situation to try to raise money in ever. Because you're just, you're just, I mean, but, in, in, you know, the flip side of that is you're selling yourself, right? So that's venture capital. You go out and you raise all this money, you put it in a fund, and then you deploy that fund over about five-year period. That's kind of your investment window. And then the next five years is kind of your harvest window, where, you know, you've invested in these companies. Now you try to exit them. Very, and I'm going to get to your question here in a second. Very yeah. interesting dynamic, right? Because you're a VC. You've got to generate returns for your investors. And you have five years to kind of deploy your capital. And you kind of have five years to harvest that capital. What if the company's not ready to sell? What if the company is going to really work in year 12 or 13 or 14 or 15 or whatever? But you're thinking like, man, time is money. I need to get my money back. And so it creates this really odd not always aligned incentives type of relationship with entrepreneurs that you always have to be careful with. And so when I say kind of venture capital thinks about community after the fact, I'm saying that's what happens after you deploy your money. So like when I'm a VC and I invest in a company, now it's like clock's ticking, game on. You need to grow this business as fast as possible and try to sell something or do something that makes me money. So leverage community, leverage mentors, go on Shark Tank. I don't care what it is, but just like, let's grow, let's grow, let's grow, let's grow. And so, you know, that kind of creates this, I'll take anything at that point. But when you go before the fact, before the investment, community's not there. And it, it's really, I think, a holdover of this, the golden rule. You know, he who, you know, has the gold makes the rules, right? And so, you know, earmuffs to anybody who is offended by this, but I did it, so I can't offend myself. There is an ivory tower mentality to being rich or having money or having money to deploy. Sit back in your chair, come to me, kiss the ring. Let's see what you got. You know, if anybody here has not raised money from VCs, I'll give you like a window into what it looks like. What's your, what's your total market size? Uh, okay. Hey, to, wait. How much are you going to make this year? Oh, you're burning? Oh. Like that, that's literally your entire pitch, is just talking to somebody like on their phone, like half paying attention. And, you know, there is this ivory tower mentality, not in all VCs, but a lot of VCs, where, you know, they are, you know, pardon my French, king shit in town. And, you know, everybody has to kiss the ring. And they are, you know, king and queen makers, you know, especially the elite venture funds. I think therein lies, you know, the opportunity where we can go with this conversation is, is it still like that? 
it's certain macro trends in society changing some of that. But I, I would wager to guess to answer the question pointedly that VCs don't really think about community the same way you would think about community prior to an investment. Really, really great summary of what the VC world is to get us all up to speed. Really great storytelling perspective made it very, very obvious. There's there's a couple different places where I'd like to take it, man. The first is it feels to me that on the on the before the investment side, actually, you know what? Let's let's start out the on the on the investment side. It feels to me that as a VC is analyzing things, you are saying they're asking, what's the market cap? I've heard that like Sequoia asks, you know, basically Sequoia is like, you just show me the book, play bigger. You know, they talk about how, how, how Sequoia, they got like a category guy that I'll be like, yeah, exactly. That'll be like, what is, what does it look like if you become the category king, right? Like if you take 76% yeah. of the market cap, how much is it, right? Like these dollars and cents, are they... When you answer that question to them, are they looking at what are they looking at that will tell them whether or not delivering on that promise is doable and is part of that? Dude, I have this insane network of people that all like follow what I'm doing, right? Like, I guess that's that's the question. Yeah. Is like, what are the assets that they're looking at, and are they valuing the concept of a really robust network? Yeah, here's what's funny, and and I, and I think I. I wish I was smart enough to know I was doing this. I think I was smart enough to know I didn't know what I didn't know. And I started thinking about this, but it led me to what, you know, I think makes me look smart in hindsight, which is probably the truth for a lot of people. You know, so I fell into venture capital by accident. You know, I was actually trying to learn how to be a better entrepreneur and being, you know, I spent 10 years in the military with the West Point for undergrad, deployed a couple of times, did some stupid things. Luckily I came home safe. And part of me getting into venture was know your enemy. I was like, if I'm going to be a good entrepreneur, I always had the back of my mind because I mean, I used to interrogate people. Like I always, you know, you you interrogate people in like, you know, Al Anbar province, you know, outside of Fallujah and you start learning like what you're hearing is not actually what's happening. And you start looking for subtle cues and, oh, wait, this means this and this means that. Or if anybody's ever, you know, done business and like, for example, Japan, you know, they will nod their head. And America, we're like, great, we're on the same page. And like, no, they're just nodding their head, acknowledging that you're speaking. They're not saying they agree with you. And so there's all these subtleties to relationships, both one-on-one and in community. You know, there's always the peacock. There's the one who's accepting everything. You got to be able to, you know, kind of, you know, create your archetypes as you go. Lydia said something in the chat here that I noticed about being very careful about, you know, do you really want venture capital money? And you need to go in eyes wide open because some of the things they're asking you, you think you know what they're asking, but it's code for something else. And so a lot of times they're assessing the entrepreneur just as much as the business. Like, is this an entrepreneur who will look for an exit? Like some people just will, companies, you know, you have to play the game a little bit. Like, you know, your, your, your home could be the most beautiful home in the world, but if no one's ever seen it and it's behind a bunch of hedgerows and you've never shown a real estate agent and nobody's ever, you know, if you cover it up on Google maps and like, you know, there's no way to sell that home. And so you can't do that. And then be in the back of your mind. I can't wait till I forex this house. Well, how are you going to forex this house? No one's seen it. You've never thrown a party. There's no pictures online. There's no way to know what the house looks like inside. It's just an address. So 
you've got to do certain things. You know, maybe you do throw up a profile on Zillow or something. And, you know, if somebody comes knocking, gives you the right price, you'll take it. But you're not interested in moving. You've got to do that as an entrepreneur. And you've got to do, have that conversation with a VC in a very real way. Now, there's a little bit of a dichotomy there because the VCs, you know, want you to focus on building the best, biggest business you can. But you still have to give credence to the exit. What is your exit? You know, do you go public? Do you get bought by a strategic? Do you get bought by a competitor? You know, do you, you know, do you sell pieces of it to a private equity firm and scale that way? You know, what is you going to, what are you going to do? And you're not telling people, well, I'm going to just, I'm going to sell. Like, you know, I'm, I'm only in this for a quick, uh, to flip this company. Cause they don't want to hear that either. But, you know, when they say, you know, what is your market cap? And, you know, what is, you know, how fast can you grow this? Where can you grow this? They're not just saying, hey, I'm a cheerleader and I'm really excited about your business and this is really on trend with where things are headed. They're, they're thinking, what do I need to exit this for in order for me to make a return? If I give you, you know, if I, if I value your company at $100 million or $80 million and I give you $20 million, I now own 20% of that. I know in the back of my mind for my fund to return money to my investors, I have maybe 10 companies in the fund Eight are going to be, you know, seven, let's say, let's call it seven are going to fail. One's going to break even, two are going to pay for the whole show. So you've got to make enough money off of those two to pay for the whole thing. Unless you're just really good. Some people are really good, but that's how they think about it going into it. I need to six to eight X every single investment because I know I'm going to lose money on, you know, 70% of my investments. So if I have, if I give you 20 million and I own 20%, and now we're a $100 million company, and I want to 5x that, you know, you've got to sell, you know, for, you know, a, you know a, a very high number at that point. So now you're talking about a 20 million times a 5x, you want to make that 100 million. By the time you get there, you're going to be diluted down by other rounds. So call it a billion dollar exit. I've got a 10x that $100 million market cap just to 5X my $20 million investment because I'm going to account for other dilutive rounds as we go. Mm-hmm. And early investors are way more concerned about dilutive rounds than later investors because the latest round prices in the terms. And so they're asking all these market cap questions to one, gain insight onto you. Do you know how you're going to return money to the, the, to the VC? Mm-hmm. And then two, how likely is it you're going to achieve that exit? You know, some businesses it's just going to be hard to grow or because of the competitive space, maybe you can't get there or because, you know, so now you're thinking, okay, well, I, if all of my competitors are all on average valued at, you know, a billion dollars and I've got to now sell this company for a billion dollars. Well, that's not as interesting if all my strategic exits are all $20 billion companies. Well, yeah, they can consume a billion dollar company. You know, Facebook can buy an Instagram for a billion, you know? And so they're thinking through that, not just, gee whiz, you're in a really good space. You got really great product market fit. This market's going off like crazy, right? Like that's what you want to hear. That's not what they're asking. Interesting. Okay. All right. So then they are, they're basically looking for how clear is the path and how well do you know it much more so than anything else. 100%. And are you willing to walk that path? Like, will you, will you post photos of your baby online. So people can tell you that baby's, you know, baby's pretty and I might want to buy it. It is, you'd be surprised at how hard it is for people to let go. And then even when they're willing to let go, what they think it's worth. And so many, a good idea, many a company 
has mistimed the market. You know, they could have sold here and then the market crashes or, you know, Russia invades Ukraine. And guess what? You're waiting another three years. So like when the market was going like gangbusters in the end of last year and, you know, nobody really saw the Ukraine, you know, the, some people saw inflation on the rise. Some people saw, you know, you know what you, Russia was doing and some people played that very well. But for the most part, the market did not play that well. So you're like, man, I could sell my company for $500 million right now. And you're like, you know what? But I think I could sell it for a billion. And then you wait three months and the market, the tech sector crashes by 70%. Your $500 million exit is now, you know, less yeah. than, you know, a hundred million. And you're thinking, shit, how long is it going to take for me to, the market to recover, for liquidity to be back? I've got to make sure I manage cash during this period. So what you're seeing right now in a market downturn VCs are chopping, you know, licking their chops because they're looking at the market like all these companies that thought they could exit couldn't. Now they all need cash to survive, especially the ones that don't aren't profitable. And now whatever I thought I was going to invest in six months ago for X, it's, you know, X divided by two. Okay. So, I mean, I, listen, I've, I've, I've got some thoughts on it of how I would pitch this idea from a community focus, but I'm, I'm curious I'm curious to just understand where you're at right now. Is there is does that does the community conversation as a strategic advantage if you've developed one and or you have a fancy plan to get to one does it even belong in that conversation or is that is that a battle not even worth fighting? It, a community always belongs, right? You know, not just to to, you know, kind of champion our conversation or this platform, but it, 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 it is a platform because you know it matters, I know it matters, everybody knows it matters. If nothing else, then to give you a bigger insight into the total picture. And it kind of matters in two different ways, right? So there's one, community as a VC, thinking about getting into the very best deals. You have to have community amongst other VCs. Like, you know, when I got more experience in my event, my first couple investments, it was like, yeah, I'm the smartest guy in the room. You know, I'll go in, I'll, you know what? You know, Cause you love to be able to tell this to an entrepreneur. I always, you know, say like entrepreneurs are little drug dealers and like, you just can't get enough. Cause like, it's super exciting to like listen to all these innovation and all this passion. And then you realize they're all little crackheads and you're like, shit, you know, I got to find the one, the diamond in the rough, right? Yeah. You know, they're all excited about what they're doing. I got to find the one that's actually legit. And so, in the very beginning, I was like, I got you. I'll do the whole round. Like, we're, we're going to kill it. And then it's like, you did the whole round, and you're the only one that they can come for for help. And most likely, the help is usually more money. And you're like, crap. My later investments, as I got more experience, was called what's a, uh, a syndicate. So I would syndicate deals with other large venture funds. And so that way, there's multiple large funds on the board. There's multiple large wallets to go after. And then there's just more community, right? There's more access to more Rolodex. There's more access to more experience. And I love leveraging that. So you'll see one of two investors. There's either the, I don't want to play well with others. I want more of the return for myself. And I'm the smartest one in the room. So I'll take the whole round. Or there is, I like being a part of a syndicate and a community. And I want to be able to get access to all the best deals. So you have community of other investors. Then you have community of entrepreneurs. You got to go where the entrepreneurs are. You know, you got to find, if you're looking for deals, I call it prospecting, but you know, rather than having an ivory tower mentality where you're just sitting waiting for deals to come to you, or you're sitting and waiting 
for someone to refer a deal to you, get out there and go to the universities, go to the meetups, go to, you know, I look at it like recruiting, you know, the very best people, they are not on, no offense, sorry, because indeed, as I can see the building, they just built an Austin right now out of my window. You are not going to find the critical game-changing player on Monster or Indeed. It's just not, in my, in my opinion. You know, and I don't mean that you shouldn't put your resume up there. You should you know, try all things. But chances are the person who is the killer salesperson, the killer engineer, they are gainfully employed, they are overpaid, and they are happy as hell. And so you've got to go poach them with your vision, your passion, excitement about something else other than compensation, like come work on this product. This is the, the tip of the spear. This is where everything is headed. And you have to get them. So the same thing goes for entrepreneurs. The, the entrepreneurs you want to invest in do not need your money. Your money is a commodity. And so this is what kind of started our conversation around community. The old guard of VC believes that they are the only game in town. The new guard knows that money is a commodity for the best entrepreneurs. If you want outsized returns, you have to find outsized potential. And the outsized potential, more often than not, they know it. And they will not kiss the ring and go to the ivory tower. They will be able to fund their business. So it's on the VC to get their foot in the door, not the entrepreneur to get their foot in the door. You want to smooth the hell out of the entrepreneurs. You want to get, you want to be shown as a partner. You want to be helpful. You want to be responsive. And so the dude doing this or the woman doing this and not paying attention as an entrepreneur, I'd stand up and walk out. I'd be like, I'm sorry. I guess my time isn't as valuable as yours. I'll go find a different investor because this isn't working. That's what's changing now because entrepreneurs have options. And so you're going to have to accept that community has leveled the playing field and put entrepreneurs even more in control than they were probably 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, man, this thread is something that I really want to pull on, right? Because I do see it as there's almost this, it's almost in in direct opposition to the way that they wanted the world to work, right? Like as as we move from this like power over to this power with world, the the traditional VC is like the quintessential Scrooge McDuck power over guy. And the power with world is almost like a threat to their existence, right? This idea, I I, I find the most attractive business model as an entrepreneur, right? I find it much more attractive to follow the path of what Russell Brunson did. Are you familiar with ClickFunnels and, and their story? Yep. Yep. So like him at I've a seen, high level. At a high level. Yeah, yeah. I've seen like there's a guy on LinkedIn that I'm I'm gonna talk to. I want to talk to him about his journey. It's called Pep Lage, who started Winter. And they've they essentially took the route of creating a a very valuable service, right? A high, a high cost, high reward service going from that service company, right? This is, this is exactly one-to-one what I'm building, going from that service company to a online education arm, right? That then goes from recurring revenue that you can kind of bank on and, and you can plan with to super high shots of gross profit that you can invest in mm-hmm. however you want. Take that super high gross profit into because it's a you know into community right like events and get people to be like yeah. real real raving fans of you for one part of it and the other part of it 
to develop a software that allows you to deliver your service slash let the people, you know, like to deliver your service more efficiently to increase the gross profit on the service side, and then turn that software into a consumer product that you now launch into a whole bunch of people that have been trying to do this for themselves, a whole bunch of people that you've been doing it for, and now they can go off and do it on their own. That's, that's the model that I'm as an entrepreneur, right? Like that to me is, I then become my own VC, right? If I need more money, I can go sell more courses or whatever. And then it it dilutes the power of the 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 woman cutting the checks from that happening. Is that is that something have you seen that model playing on? Is that something that people talk about in these circles? Is that is there an existential threat happening because of this like ability to go straight to market? Yeah, I think yeah, so Yes and no. So you said a couple of really smart things and I want to unpack them as we go. You know, first, and I'll like, I'll circle back to this, but you know, you, you first kind of talked about this idea of, of power and is there a transition? And I wrestle with that because the game doesn't change, right? Like I, I always say this about crypto, you know, it's like the, you know, the man has been the man for a long time and the man will be the man long after, you know, Bitcoin's ubiquitous, you know, only the uninitiated think that people are wedded to the thing that begets power. Power is power, full stop. Not knowledge, it's not money, it's just power is power. You know it when you see it and you know when you don't have it. And so people who have power and or want power or want to keep power have different things that enable them to do that. Sometimes it is knowledge, sometimes it is wealth, and sometimes it's you know, status, and sometimes it's cheating, and it's a million other things that probably go into that and feed into that monster that is power. The really powerful don't care what it is as long as they maintain power. And so you look at like, you know, currency, you know, I don't, they don't care if it's the fur trade, spices, gold, you know, IP, Bitcoin, cash, the yen, you know, it's just, these are just tools and they're toolkits. And they all have a diversified approach to all of it. So if something else looks more attractive, cool. They don't care. People think like Bitcoin is going to like, you know, take over banking. No, it's not. The people who own the most IP around crypto are the banks. It's Goldman Sachs and Bank of America. There is a reason why they have the most IP around blockchain. Because whether whether they're going to stifle it now while they position themselves, or while they're going to, you know, because look, De Beers does that. De Beers has a patent for a synthetically created diamond in a lab, but they have a patent for it so nobody else can do it. And they have a crap load of supply so they can make it seem like, you know, there's limited supply. So they game the system to get to the end result. And so the next part of what you were talking about really is a flywheel. Can you, in a constructive way, game your own system, you know, so that community begets profits, begets reinvestment, begets community, begets, you know, value proposition, market fit. And that's just that flywheel. I think everybody thinks about it. Even they, and everybody knows about it, whether they know or not, because most of the world has some sort of Apple product. Apple has figured this out better than anyone on the planet. There is nothing innovative that Apple does. Full stop. Ever. They just do what other people try to do better. And they understand how to fold community into it. I can't tell you. So I am one of the last holdouts. I have an Android because I don't like being told what to do. No offense to everybody with an Apple, but, you know, you like being told what to do. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You know, so Apple has is just 
genius. They're just brilliant. You know, whether it's MP3s, whether it's the smartphone, whether it's the iPod, none of that was new. They just understood form factor and they understood people. I have features on my Android phone that I'll, I'll have been using for two years. And then somebody will come to me with an iPhone and be like, bro, out. use my face to log in. I'm like, I've been doing that for two years. Yeah. But they just think it's the most amazing thing in the world, like blue bubbles. I don't, I don't want that green bubble. Why do you care? And kids are literally getting bullied for green bubbles. That's community. And guess what? That community drives acceptance and then drives profitability because those kids got to go out and buy an iPhone so they no longer have a green bubble. It's genius. It's kind of sad that people care. It's sad that we teach our kids to give a shit about green and blue bubbles. I mean, God, who? I, I want my kid to be like, Dad, I got a green bubble and it's amazing. Screw these blue bubble kids. <laughs> like that's what, I, that's what I hope for as a future parent. But that's them understanding how to take a product how to build community around that product, how to inform additional product development, drive additional profitability, drive that profitability back into product and just keep going. And guess what? Apple doesn't need to raise money ever because they don't have to give up that power ever because they're one of the most valuable companies on the planet. So you have to get there. That's kind of the holy grail for a company to be so successful and so profitable that you don't need to you know, necessarily raise money. And if you do, you do it on your own terms. That is, that is tough. Most venture-backed companies are unprofitable because the business model as a whole, this goes back to community as well, give it away. So think about that. So if you've never heard the acronym KPI, it's Key Performance Indicators. VCs will have this. You know, venture capitalists will talk about this. They'll say, okay, you know, as a company, how are we going to measure success? And so you think about that in terms of different metrics. Are you going to measure success in terms of revenue growth? Are you going to measure success in terms of profitability? Are you going to measure, you're going to say, screw all that. Like, we're not going to ever turn a profit. Uber has never turned a profit. Amazon is not really a profitable company. They, I think they finally started to here and there more recently. But for the longest time, for, for 15 years, they didn't. And that was, that was by design. They were like, look, we're going to, what little money we have, we're going to plow back into growth. And it's a land race. We're going to, we're going to grab as much land as possible. And then we're going to build upon that. And investors believe it. They're like, all right, cool, bet, got it. All right, we're going to drive user growth and community at all costs. Forget about profitability and revenue. Okay, as long as you can get on the same page with your investors as a private company or your shareholders as a public company, by all means, you know, just, just be open and honest about what your goals are and then make sure your strategic initiatives align with those goals. Oof. That was a golden nugget right there. I'm going to have my team clip that and paste that across all my social media channels. So if you could just give this a pause right now, go into the show notes and connect with me on whatever platform you like to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever you want to be a part of my life in connect with me there. I'm going to share that clip and you can share it with your friends so that they get the same lesson. It'll be adding value to their life. And while you're at it, Go ahead and subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Hit five-star review, right? You don't have to leave a review. You just got to hit five stars. If you want to leave a review, cool. And maybe send the episode to your friend. That would be awesome. That's it. I'm done. Back to the show. Thank you for that, man. That was great. That's a great breakdown. I think you're really going to love 
play bigger, right? Because it's gonna it's gonna give you <laughs> more, more, more of the genius of what Apple's done in a very like formulaic fashion, man. Okay, so I'm gonna ask a couple questions here from the community, and then I'm gonna take like a little bit of a a detour into into funware and blockchain and stuff like that, cool. right? So Venia has a question. She asks, "Does the formula seven will fail, one breaks even, and two pay for it all change when you leave the scope of small businesses in companies that get crazy high funding rounds like Discord, Comsor, and Threado?" Do you see a larger chance of success? Would you say that it's it's due to the money or due to the investor syndicate that you're talking about? That's a great question. And remind me, uh, and I just like uh, again, community for me is all about getting to know people. Remind me of Venia's background, or do we know it? Yeah, man, Venia is uh, she's an anthropologist that then became a marketer. So now she really gets oh. the community game at a super high level. She she yeah. she has a company called Socially Constructed Online and. She was on a couple of weeks ago, man. Her like conversations with her about community are just freaking fascinating. So that's where she it. is. Like, yeah, yeah. Anthropology is super cool. Like I got him drawing his drawing a name on his uh, blank on his name. Um with Slack, Stuart Butterfield, I wanna say. Anyways, there there was a there was a there was a there was an era when like every big shot CEO was like a psych major or somebody, you know, like a sociology major or just something that was just a little bit more cerebral. And they were like, Oh, what's going on? Um, and I think a lot of it was that ability to kind of see complex pictures. And it wasn't just, I'm an engineer. I've got to prove this point. I've got to do these things. Cause that's what everybody always thinks, right? To be a successful entrepreneur, you know, you got to be an engineer. And it was like, wait, hold on. No, not necessarily. A lot of these big time companies are now being driven by people you know, from anthropology and then just kind of understanding, you know, at a high level, what it takes to play bigger. Right. So yeah. I think a hundred percent, the inclination is yes. I think the statistics change completely. As you get bigger, you start to think about other, you know, buzzwords that you hear, you know, too big to fail, you know, and you know, that power thing can be, you know, call it intoxicating, you know, there, when you put enough money into something, you don't want it to fail and you'll plow more money into it. And so you, you, you hear this term called living dead where, you know, there's these companies that have, they're not going anywhere, but they have so much money behind them that that they can't really, you know, fail. And you'll see that a lot of people talk about that from these big companies that you love, you know, hell Boeing almost went bankrupt like four times, like five times, but you know, sometimes like inertia is a, pretty powerful thing. And you get, and this is why going back to VCs and community matter. When you get the right VCs who do have a little bit of that ego that they don't want to fail either, you'll get to a point where you'll say, all right, I need more money or we're going to run out of money and fail. And if you have the wrong investors, they're going to be like, sorry, shut that thing down. But then you get some people who they don't want to fail and they don't want to admit they failed and they don't want to admit they were wrong. That's the big thing. You don't want to admit that you chose wrong. You see this in HR all the time. You hire somebody, Gary Vee talks about this all the time. You typically know within the first like 48 to 72 hours whether or not you made a good hire or not. But it'll take you three to six months to exit them if it really is a bad hire, because nobody wants to admit that they hired wrong and they want to be, oh, I'll give them another chance. I'll give her another chance. So when you have larger rounds, larger companies, they're just an, the inertia takes over. So the you know seven fail, one breaks even, two pays for the whole thing. I would say that's seed, Series A, Series B, maybe Series C. 
Those are your first initial rounds of funding as a private business. After that, once you start raising big time money, you know, call it, you know, $25 million and more, you're just graduating to a new level of thinking. And hopefully you have a big enough business that has a big enough inertia that will keep that momentum going as long as you're doing the right things. Now, what typically happens, which, you know, I don't know if anyone's was going here with this is the company I say keeps going, not the entrepreneur, not the founding team, not the early investors. Power begets power and inertia is something that has nothing to do with the people a lot of times. So once you start raising big time money, you know, you ask anybody in the Valley and you've raised, you know, significant, you know, you know, eight figure, even nine figure money, you'll own single digit percentages of your company more often than not, you know, you, and you are, especially if you go public, but more often than not, even as a private company, the investors have a way to get rid of you and they will 100% exercise that right. Again, remember ego, the company is too big to fail, not you, the entrepreneur. I'm here to generate a return for my investors, not to, you know, so you can live out your entrepreneurial dream. Now, the best is when you can do both, but if, push comes to shove, I will exit an entrepreneur to maintain the sanctity of the company's promise and realize its true potential. And every single VC will do the exact same thing. They're not going to go down with the ship. The company has to go, has to come first. The shareholders have to come first, not your ego, not your entrepreneurial vision, not your journey, not what you thought you were going to do, not what they told you in high school that you were going to be. You know, that is one of these things I think a lot of people fail to realize. So, you know, to answer Vinny's question, as you get past Series C, as you get into advanced rounds of funding, the company typically has more options to stay alive. So that percentage of failures changes. But all in all, I mean, you know, failure is still the norm, even public companies. You know, it's crazy. Like I think in the last, there was a statistic I saw the other day in the last 10 years, like, there's only like 10% of the S&P that is still like around, like even public companies fail. Yeah, like yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of public companies that are no longer here that were here 10 years ago. So, you know, I think that people have to go in eyes wide open that this is a cutthroat business. And the more, you know, community you have, the more op- opportunities you have for strategic partnerships, for recruiting, for future funding rounds, and just for maintaining your own relationship with people. You have to have relationships with your investors your partners, your clients, and your employees. And if you can do that well, you know, you'll set your company up for success, but you'll also be better likely to stick around if the hard times, you know, hit and people start looking at you like maybe you're the problem. That's a super interesting nuance, man, because as as um as I heard you breaking it down, it was it's it's obvious to me, like we we we've kind of talked from the beginning that social validation is this like really powerful tool, right? Like it's it's been part of this whole thing. And it would make sense that the more people that put in money, the more social validation you have. And therefore, you continue to like compound this kind of flywheel effect. But also, the more people that have in money, the less instrumental, you know, like the more it's important to the vast majority and the less key to the equation you become as well. Right. So I think that that's a really, really interesting dichotomy. Of, and, and um, it, 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 it can be empowering, right? I think when people, this is a, this is a hard, I'm still trying to grasp this and learn this because I've kind of been on both sides of the table, right? I've raised money as a VC. I've deployed money as a VC. I've raised money as an entrepreneur. I've deployed money as an entrepreneur. 
uh, and I've done this as an angel investor as well on both sides of the table. So I think you, you hear these, you know, there, there's a million anecdotes and analogs. And I don't mean to cheapen it by saying one, but, you know, real leaders don't often choose to lead. It's just kind of, you kind of, it's, it's almost inertia in and of their own journey. And there's always a humility to leading. It's not about ego. It's what is best for the company. I think we talked about this, but on my birthday, so I, my birthday was August 18th and I was in the office because I don't really take days off. And I was, you know, we just moved into this really cool historic building for our office. Uh, downside of having a really historic building, which is all your office, it's kind of like a house, is you got to do all the work that you would do for a house. And so I was taking the trash out and like one of my you know, employees was coming in and he was like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm taking the trash out. And it's like, you know, why? Like one, you know, you're the COO of the company. Like, why are you doing that? And two, you know, it's your birthday. Like, what are you doing taking out the trash on your birthday? And I'm like, it needed to be done. You know, I, I don't have, I'll do what it takes. I, I want to, you know, I don't have to be right. I want to get it right. And I don't find a lot of, for me, ego has never been that helpful. And I've seen too many examples of ego get people into trouble. You know, you hit first. And then you don't have all the answers. You know, you make an assumption and you end up kind of devaluing your own position in community. And like, you know, again, everything is community, right? You have a community of your family. You have a community of your close friends. You have a community of your acquaintances. You have a community with your employees. Everyone's watching all the time, everything you do all the time. And so, you know, I think when you can have that humility to understand that you are just one piece of a larger puzzle and that you are replaceable and not take offense to that, you actually will find more power because there, there's that, there's that it's, it's too abstract. I founded this company. I'm the CEO of the company. The, the company is me. Is it though? What about the hundred people you got working for you? What about the thousand people you got working for you? What about the investors who believed in you? What about the people who buy your products? They don't matter. If you go away, they all go away. You know, that, that hubris is dangerous. And so I think that more people can accept that you should prove your value every day and that you shouldn't kind of just hit that glide path and be like, well, I, I, I raised money. I, my job security is good. I don't think anybody should have job security. Why? You're not doing your job. You should go. And if you're doing your job, no one's going to want you to leave. Man, that hits. Uh, it hits really, really true to me, man. I, uh, I completely thank you for thank you for that, right? Because I, I, the role of the servant leader has always been uh, very near and dear to me. And I know that whenever I'm, the times that I've taken a bad path has been because I'm like, well, I feel like I just got this far enough, or like the rest can coast. And the moment that you take your eye off of it is the moment that stuff starts to get twisted, and you got to go back and do the stuff that you haven't, that you thought you were past. Right. So it's like, yeah. never, never kind of let that go, man. So I, uh, thank you for that, man. That really puts a lot of stuff in line. I want to ask a quick question from Dawn here, which is, so Dawn is a, Dawn is a nomad, right? Like she has been, she's built this like writing business and does all this like fascinating work around the world. So she's asking with oh, the increase of, yeah, yeah. It's really cool. Like, like total, like civil rights, like warrior in the in the deepest darkest places man doing really important can, stuff. can i can i assume that that civil rights you know has, has spanned multiple you know cultures multiple geographies 100 100 percent. super cool 
Yeah, it's really cool. So she's asking, with the increase of entrepreneurs going nomad with global networks community, are VCs more willing to back a nomad or is that seen as like a flight slash bad risk? Sounds like she's had some previous example. Of that. Have you seen that? That is such a good question. I will say both, but sobering with both is it totally depends on the entrepreneur. I think if you're going to be nomadic, and here's the, let me start with the problem, and then I'll go to why it still can work. So it's kind of what I, I believe now. And so the, and, and I, the good thing is there's no right answer, right? You got to find what's right for you, right? What's right for your investment thesis, find what's right for your, your culture, you know, what you love. Like, I don't like, like do you, 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 so because my dog got, you know, amputated and had a leg amputated, which we talked about before this, I'm taking care of her at home. Normally I would be in the office. Like, I, I love being in the office. I need that energy. At home is home for me. Office is work. I don't work out at home. I don't try to work from home. I like getting into the office, communing with my people, just riffing on things around the water cooler, all the cliches you can imagine. That's my jam. But I also come from the military. Like I come from, you know, sports. Like I love the camaraderie. I think that the world is in for a big wake up call because we're still tracking on the inertia of in-person life. And so like right now, like my tenure for my, you know, my, my core software, you know, engineers and my core software kind of company is like five and a half years. So we could, rem we worked remote easy because we were all, we already knew each other. We already, you know, had each other's back. We already built and went through so much together. And so I didn't have any retention issues. The people who I have retention issues with were the people that I hired during the pandemic. who we never met. They joined, something didn't work out. They probably were just like wait, looking for a paycheck while they hung out and then got a different job and then went and did something else. And so I now I'm a little bit cynical. I'm like, all right, like, are you, are you, you know, do you want to be a part of an organization? Do you want to be a part of community? Do you want to do that? I don't want it to be remote. I want to see you. I want to get to know you. I want to break bread with you. I want you to feel, you know, pain in your heart, leaving me behind, leaving this company behind. And when you're remote, and you're, you know, you, you just got a bunch of people and you collaborate on Google Docs and you never really get together and share that time together. It's just easier to walk away from some things and some people. Hmm. So, and then I see that sometimes with leadership where you'll have employees somewhere, but the leaders, you know, off somewhere else, you know, you went public in Canada, but you live in New York. And it's like, it's just tough in my mind to do that. Human beings are naturally social animals. We naturally are always seeking connection. Like, what is community really? Community is about, can I be seen and can I connect with you? I'm looking for validation through my presence. Otherwise, it wouldn't, you know, we're social beings. And, and so I think for me, I will always, and we see this with blockchain a lot, you know, so right now blockchain is driven by people hiding behind avatars. It's driven by, you know, one person in Colombia, somebody else in, you know, Vietnam, somebody else in Poland, and they're all just, they pretend to be a company, but they're not, you know, they're just working on crypto projects whenever they feel like it. They don't have a mission and a vision and commander's intent. I know somebody pointed out, I will use uh, military uh, <laughs> vernacular every once in a while, so I apologize for that. But commander's intent is this idea of where are we going? Why are we going there? And then having that small unit leadership below you that you power and that you resource and that you believe in and that you push, there is organizational discipline that will be required to do anything special.
Now, that doesn't mean you can't be nomadic and still achieve the exact same thing. There's plenty of examples. I just think it's harder. And so a VC is going to be like, I'm investing in a company. I'm not investing in a smattering of people all over the world that may or may not be working all the time or may or may not be doing different things every once in a while. And this is a little bit of an archaic view because there's some people who are, you know, we see the Instagram generation, right? Where it's like, you're hanging out on the beach in Puerto Rico and you're a digital nomad. And I'm thinking like, do I really want to give you $10 million to build your business? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. So like, so here's, here's the flip side of that. If your business is killing it, it won't matter. So if you want to be nomadic and you want to do what you want to do, but you're growing community like gangbusters and you're throwing product out the door, like it's your job because it is, and your employees love you and you're growing your business, VCs won't care. You know, they they will, if you don't have anything, they'll default to wanting you to build a real company. If you can show them crazy growth, then you're proving that Nomad works for you through tangible results. So I always say, show me, don't tell me. Yeah. If you're killing it, then you're killing it. So, So right now, my employees know they don't have to punch a clock. In the military, we always say train to, you know, train to standard, not to time. And when you're training to standard, not to time, it's not saying, like, I, don't, I don't need to be butts in the seat from eight to six to prove that you're valuable. Just because you're busy doesn't mean you're productive. And just because you're productive doesn't mean you're effective. Hmm. Two hours of one person's time might be worth 10 of somebody else. And just because you're in the office, if you're playing words with friends the whole time or, you know, searching Google Maps, I don't really, being in the office doesn't help me. So I think if you can show that you're valuable, regardless of being remote or in, 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 you know, in an actual building or being, you know, in the Philippines versus being in, you know, Silicon Valley, the results will speak for themselves. Kill it. Go be a nomad, build your business, show them that you can work from anywhere. I, I wouldn't care. But if you don't have that, I'll want to see you, touch you, grab you, and then have you in a, in a company because I just believe in, in the culture of companies. Yeah, man. All that makes a lot of sense. I, uh, I want to read off a couple of things here from the community. Kira, who is a um, very spiritual person, like has, has perception before the, beyond the things that most people perceive, right? So, oh, I love that. Um, yeah. Community is created in energy form first, and you are tuned into the deeper energy. If you don't need the physical presence, unless you aren't using your intuition and creating the group energy. And I think that that is, um, yeah. you know, th- that's real. Like we invest, we invest heavily in remote work culture at my company, right? Like Ryan, yeah. Ryan will tell you, right? Like we start every meeting with, what are you grateful for? That allows us to get to know, you know, like what people prioritize in their life and get to know them. We are Monday mornings, like all hands are probably about like 25 minutes of like, what have you been up to? How was your weekend? Right? Like very, very deliberately spending time in that stuff. Because as Venia points out, this idea that a lot of companies try to make this transition during during the pandemic and then and then reverted back, right? Like there is mm-hmm. there is this growing trend of this is coming down the pike and we just had our first shot at it, right? Like, and it went like this and then shrunk back to this, but that doesn't mean that this isn't going to continue to grow because I think we saw a lot of benefit coming from all of it and people are going to still crack it. And I find it really interesting that we're still going back to this idea of like, VCs might not value community, but if you can crack remote work community, now you're a real company, right? (laughs) So Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's I think I think she said something very very important. I mean, it's going to be you know there, there, 
for every situation where I could see that like going remote has failed, I can show something where going remote has succeeded and vice versa, where everything where you say, well, back in the office, you know, has really successful. I can show you companies where back in the office wasn't successful. So like what you found during the pandemic and a lot of like kind of white collar, you know, the Cisco's of the world, there's a lot of studies that were done that were like, you probably have 50% too many people. Like, and they're just sitting there as this bloated, you know, they're not doing anything. They're not adding value and you could lose them tomorrow. And it's sad to hear it, but you probably wouldn't have that much of an impact. Like you were carrying too much. And I hate to say it kind of like dead weight, not really dead weight. It's, are you really applying your weight in the right ways? And so, you know, for everybody that kind of chastises remote, I can find examples where you can chastise in office culture and perspective. So I think what Kira said is important. That being said, the variable that I introduce into that is leadership. You know, it, it is, you can't think about those two constructs in and of themselves. And that's where human beings love this. We love binary thinking. And I could, the world is too complicated and scary not to approach everything in a binary manner. You know, it's red state versus blue state, black versus white, black lives matter, all lives matter, you know, remote in, you know, it's like, you know, it's like gone are the days where you can compromise. Right. And so, I think when you think about that, should you return to the office? Should you be remote? And it's like very polarizing. Leadership is what nobody talks about. Like, what are you doing to enable a sense of community remotely? You know, just saying what you're grateful for. And I feel like there's a lot of misapplications of very cerebral topics. And so if like anybody's ever taken like a Myers-Briggs test, we have our natural egocentric tendencies to say, I'm an ENTJ. Just like I would say, I'm a Leo. I want you to know me. I'm going to tell you who I am. That's not why that test was built. That test was designed so you could be a better communicator. So if I know you're a visual learner, I shouldn't just ambush you in the office. I should send you an email, tell you what we want to talk about. I should get on your calendar and then let you get prepared for that meeting and then we could have a constructive meeting. But if I just barge into your, you know, you know, your office and I'm like, let's whiteboard this thing out right now. And, like, and I just kind of, you know, really take over. It's going to put you off a little bit and you're going to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. And now I'm like, well, why aren't you excited about this? Let's talk about this. Why don't you want to riff with me? And it's like, that's just not how they communicate. It's not the, how they receive information. And so I think if you can understand your people, what they need, what they need from community, what they need from working with you, then I think, you know, Kira's right. Like if you can, if you can manage that from a leadership perspective to give people the space to be successful, you know, because I think that's the one thing a lot of people don't understand about remote. If you are super stressed about getting your kid out the door and making everybody lunches, and then you're really pissed off because traffic sucks, by the time you get to work at nine or eight or whenever you get to work, you need like a, two hours to just like decompress and be like, oh, God, I'm tired. Like you're not coming to work ready to go. But when sometimes when you give people that, that space to be able to still manage their family and get people out the door and do all these things, they come to work you know, on the computer at home, refreshed and ready to go. Other people feel like they have no connection. So you as a leader have to understand who are your people, what do they need? And I see this all the time with even like compensation, like what moves people, you know, is a cash bonus gonna like really move the needle or does more time off move the needle? You know, what are the things 
that your people value. You've got to get to know your people and then you'll know whether or not you should be in the office, remote, hybrid, you know, but I would just say, as long as you set proper expectations, that's going to keep people at least eyes wide open working with you. You know, don't try to, you know, people do this in relationships all the time. You know, I like this person, but I'm going to fix two or three major things I don't like. Don't start dating somebody with the idea that you're going to fix them. You know, that, that's, a, that's a terrible way to approach a relationship. It's a terrible way to approach leadership in your company. You should say, when I hire people right now, like I'm hiring people for our Austin office, I'm like, it's an in-office position. Don't, you know, don't even ask me otherwise. Like I'm filling this office because we have this really cool space and I want it, you know, full. And then occasionally we'll see somebody like a salesperson, like, Hey, I really want to live in Florida. Okay, cool. Like you're a salesperson. Like you're going to be on the road anyways, doing your own thing. Totally cool with that. And so just set proper expectations. And then I think you can find your way when it comes to what type of culture you want to build. Man, I could not agree with you more on just about everything that you've said so far, Randall. My only, my only regret is that we got into such like deep conversations about these things that we haven't talked about the importance of like engaging people on time, which I think is a big part of community. It's a big part of what Fundware is doing. I really wanted to get your takes on, on kind of like the future of blockchain. I think we, if you're up for it, we'll do this another time. We can do time, a part man. two. We'll yeah, do a part yeah, two. we'll do a part and, two. We're gonna... and, and yeah, we'll make sure it's not on a holiday too. <laughs> We'll do it on a normal day. Although, man, listen, I, I, I'll i take quality over quantity anytime, man. The people that showed up today, Don, Gareth, Kira, Benia, oh, super high quality members of our community. We're going to roll into the relationship-driven growth strategy sessions. Before that, Randall, man, I just want to acknowledge you, dude. Like I, Your emotional intelligence just like drips off of you. It's it's really, oh, really impressive to watch a... Uh, Alpha dude, veteran guy, COO operator, be so emotionally intelligent, the way that you engage the community and like the way that you answer questions. It's so obvious to me that you approach the world from this, like, how can I, I, you're not just saying facts, you know, that you're providing an experience for people in a way that they can adopt it, man. And I find that really, really impressive people that, that work that hard at at coming across that way. I know it's not a a natural thing, man. So really, really cool, really admire it. And uh, I'd like to kind of just ask you, what's uh, where do you want to send people to? What's the best way to connect with you? Anything that you want to promote, man, just stage is yours. Yeah, no, I, I, one, thank you. You know, thank you for people that did, you know, tune in. I was kind of trying to not, you know, I'm trying to pay it, you know, be, I, one thing I always tell people is be present, right? And it's hard when like, you have so much really good, you know, content coming in. And can be, I always, I always find I, I hate networking at conferences because there's so many people I want to talk to that like I don't I, I'll get caught with like one person talking for an hour and I'm like oh man there's so many other great people to talk to so I'm trying to read the 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 thread here and I'm like oh that's a really good point and I'm, I'm trying to like be present and listen to your questions and so you I don't know really how you do well it. It's it, man. a challenge. You did really really well with it. <laughs> um, so I, I'm not a big you know I'm honestly not a big promoter. You know I love doing this. I love seeing where things go organically. I love relationships. I love people, you know, it's fascinating what people are capable of. And so I love people's stories that like enable them to be capable of so much. Right. So, you know, for me, you know, you can put one of my employees did this for me. I did not, you know, build this myself, which is why it's dated and I never do it. But if you want to learn more about me, go to randallcrowder.com. One of these days I got to update it because it's just, it's kind of silly. They did it as a joke, but you know, at Randall Crowder on Instagram, at Crowder Official on Twitter. I have at Randall Crowder on Twitter, but I can't figure out what my password is. So until I figure it out, it will be at Crowder Official. Uh, and if you want to learn about Funware, go to Funware. It's with a PH. So Funware.com. 
fun. We do have some blockchain stuff we're doing. Yeah. And so Ron just posted a lot of these to the thread. So, you know, reach out to me anytime. I'm also Randall Crowder on LinkedIn. Easy to find. You got any questions, thoughts, you know, opportunities to collaborate, ways I can be helpful. I actually like helping more than I like, I like asking for help. And so if there's something I can do for you, introductions I can make that, you know, I, I would be able to make or just insight I can provide or questions I can answer please, you know, let me know. I'm very easy to find and, and I, t- I tend to always work. So, you know, anytime you want to get me, you can get me. Love that, man. We'll, we'll tag all that in the show notes. Who is a typical consumer of, of Funware, man? Who is your typical client? So we know who to send you. Yeah. Who, who to send yeah. To so, you. you know, anything, you know, so healthcare and hospitality are our big thing. So the big, the big kind of, you know, elevator pitch on Funware is we tech enable the real world. So, you know, the metaverse is a marketing gimmick. It won't be the metaverse for a very long time. What gets me up in the morning is I want to tech enable the real world. I don't want to escape the real world for a virtual one. I want to make the real world a better one. And so that's my jam. We basically, we just launched at Atlantis down in the Bahamas. So we build mobile software for massive companies that allow people to tech enable any complex user journey. So we built the first NFL app. We built the first NASCAR app. We've done presidential elections, hospitals, hotels, stadiums, airports, you name it. We'll build mobile ecosystems that were designed around context. So how do I get the right information to the right customer on the right screen at the right time in the right place? So we just launched at Atlantis down in the Bahamas, a large like hospitality luxury resorts are our jam. We just launched a couple hospitals in Virginia and Maryland. So hospitals are great, you know, tech enabling the continuum of care or tech enabling the guest experience at a hotel, anything in Vegas, like casinos, we work with Wynn and a few others. And so I love any brand who's looking to better engage their customers and they want to do it in a mobile first world that's quickly feeling like it might be mobile only. That's what we do. Well, if Randall isn't just a supremely likable, super smart dude, I don't know what is. If you liked that episode, I highly suggest you check out episode 131, which is lessons learned from the biggest B2B SaaS accelerator in Silicon Valley that launched a community forum ventures with uh, um, Michael Cardamon and Jeff Becker. It is very much into this very similar world and how accelerators are launching through a community model in order to really add value to their entrepreneurs Apart from that, man, I am in the middle of a howitzer of a month, just going conference to conference, wrapped up uh, FinCon, then CMX was incredible, and um, you're going to hear all about that on the show upcoming here. Uh, Up next is the Badass Business Summit for me, probably too late for you to join me, but you're going to hear more about it um, during this. Important to note is in October is the Jesse Lane Business Conference, right? The eight-figure contractor, if you want to come to Jacksonville and you are in the world of real estate or um, construction or building out a service business, this will help you scale your business. And it's October 22nd and 23rd. I'll be speaking and emceeing it. After that, I am headed November 2nd and 3rd to, and I haven't announced this yet, to crisp video summit live that is a law firm marketing uh conference but it's an incredible event that i've been to now two years in a row and i'm just totally addicted to it and can't stop going because it's so well done it's a well-made community by 
the founder of Crisp Video and an incredible story. And then after that, I'm going to be in Vegas for the Fortune Builders uh, real estate event. It's their Ignite Conference. It's all about real estate in Vegas. I think it's like November 11th. I'm going to start adding uh, those show notes. So if you want to meet me in person, I would love, love to hang out with you. My biggest takeaway from this Randall Crowder episode is the idea that money is becoming a commodity and really the access that you have, right? The connections that you can forge, the people that you can intro to for wisdom, aka the community that you can build around you is becoming the tactical advantage for both the VC and the entrepreneur, right? This world of VC seems to be moving away from transactions and more into relationships, which is what we like to espouse on this show. If you want help on incorporating those strategies into your business, join us on the show. Right after this, we go into the relationship-driven growth, AMAs, strategy sessions, where people bring their questions, and we give you insights to contextualize straight to your bottom line. And of course, got to thank my team, Roanne, who is my account manager, makes all this thing run, JP, who makes all the content look great and repurpose, uh, Gina, our chief heart officer, who is running operations behind the scenes and the culture of our team, which makes it amazing, Marge, who is always uh, looking out for her, Nicola, who is my partner in writing this amazing um, newsletter that we have uh, been publishing with great success it's called relationship driven growth strategy you can find it on substack our latest episode of content Life community is really blown up and um, people are loving it and of course the rest of the team our account managers joanna joyce is on maternity leave can't wait to have her back uh jade who is helping us with writing and qc and philip who's our newest content editor as well and uh, of course read our content strategist And don't forget, relationships will always beat transactions.